This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project, and welcome back. I'm Ron Steslow. It's time for another State of the Vote episode, where once per week, we bring you an update on the national political map as voters around the country begin casting their ballots. This election is unlike any other in history because of the record number of ballots that are being cast by mail. So although we're conditioned to think that Election Day is a one-time event that happens on one day of the year, people are voting right now. In fact, mail-in ballots have already started being sent in key states like Florida and Georgia and Minnesota and North Carolina and Pennsylvania and Virginia and Texas and Wisconsin and dozens more. And this week, ballots will be mailed in California and Connecticut, Maine, New Hampshire, New York, and South Carolina. Joining me today is Lincoln Project co-founder and former political director of the California Republican Party, Mike Madrid. Mike, it is so great to have you on again. It's always good to be here. Let's do it again. As well as political strategist, former campaign manager for Joe Walsh's primary challenge to Donald Trump, a former senior political advisor and communications director of the Goldwater Institute, and an Arizona native, Lucy Caldwell. Lucy, I'm so glad you could join us today. Thanks, Ron. It's great to be here with you guys. So let's start with mail-in ballots which are out in over half the states in the country, Mike. Before we dig into the state-specific stuff, what are the trends we're seeing on the national map that voters should be watching right now? Well, the first thing to keep in mind is, as of the taping of this show, there's been over 600,000 ballots cast in the U.S. presidential election. So as much as we've been reminding people that there really is no election day anymore, there's really an election month, we're now going to start seeing exponential rates of numbers start popping up as all of these other states come online. So 600,000 is quite a bit. I mean, there's going to be probably 150 million votes cast by November 3. Um, but, you know, every day is going to be a big, big, big chunk of that. So the election's happening in real time, and we've got to be mindful that there's a record number of requests for absentee ballots. Uh, 27 states have expanded vote by mail in one way, shape, or form. And... Um, we're, it's here. It's upon us. It's here. We're rolling. Yeah. And so as these numbers start coming in in huge waves, what are we looking for and in what states, just broadly? Well, you're looking for a couple of things. The first is you're going to be looking for the number of absentee ballot requests, which is generally a sign of enthusiasm or interest in the, in the race. The second is what you're looking for is a partisan split, uh, which we know is going to break pretty heavily for the Democrats uh, this time, which again is kind of anomalous, um, breaking a, you know, a 20, 30-year trend here. Um, and then, we'll, we'll, of course, as we get deeper into the election cycle, and with only 39 days, that's kind of a funny thing to say, but you'll start looking at the number of returns that are cast, right? You don't want just ballots sitting out there. 
Uh, campaigns will be chasing those that are still sitting out there. But uh, the, the main sign of enthusiasm is requests and then returns. And when they are returned, we have been talking about and campaigns have been conditioning people to vote early, quickly, as soon as you get the ballot, turn it around because of the post office challenges and some of the narrative that the president's been putting out there. Right. Okay. Let's take a look at North Carolina for just a minute because we talked about North Carolina right after their ballots were mailed. Um, can you talk a little bit about what early returns we're seeing in that state in particular and what they mean? Yeah. Uh, we, we look at North Carolina because it's the first state to begin voting by absentee ballot. And we mentioned that uh, on a previous podcast, there've been 1 million absentee ballot requests, which is a huge number. To put that in perspective, uh, the number of ballots cast from absentee at this time in 2016 was 11,137. Uh, today, that number sits at 203,055, which is, I mean, it's just, it's, it's like inconceivable, the size, the significance of how big it is and how big it's gotten. So, um, yeah, enormous enthusiasm. They're breaking at least with the returns three to one. Uh, favoring the Democrat for, for Joe Biden. That's not terribly surprising. We will see an equal and commensurate uh, high turnout on the day of election voters. So again, we're seeing two different types of elections happening. North Carolina is the perfect example of that. Enthusiasm's off the chart. Absentee ballot requests off the chart. Returns off the chart. Three to one break for the Dems. Going to keep growing exponentially until November 3rd, at which point in time, the partisan split will completely change 180 degrees. We'll see a massive influx of Republicans going to the polls. And that is a perfect example of what you've described earlier. North Carolina is a perfect example of what you've described several times before on the podcast about how it's going to look like Trump wins on election night. And then day by day, as the count matures, we will see a massive shift toward Joe Biden. Exactly And that's right. because- that's because of the demography of who's voting how, right? And the good news is we're starting to see the, the overall media start to talk about this and educate people more about being patient, about the fact that it's going to take a couple of days, and perhaps most importantly, the fact that the president is going to be communicating and messaging into this environment between the count and the count on November 3rd and the daily ballot count that comes in from absentees claiming that the election is being stolen and then all the shenanigans that we are already seeing uh, happening in real time to start preventing these ballots from being counted. I want to take some time now to talk about Arizona, Lucy. They are set to start voting in early October. Um, do you want to set the stage by talking a little bit about what the demographics and trends in Arizona are uh, before we talk about Cindy McCain? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that one thing that sometimes gets lost about Arizona is that it is a far more purple state than people realize. And it has actually is not only becoming more so demographically, but has been a state that has not ever been kind of hyper-partisan in the way that some people might think. We had Janet Napolitano as governor in 2018. Mm. Arizonans elected Kirsten Cinema over Martha McSally, whom we like to remind people has never actually won a Senate <laughs> never state actually been elected. <laughs> in, in, in Arizona. Um, but so I, I think that Arizona is a place that is changing. I think it sometimes gets kind of a, a bad rep because um, when we do crazy, we do crazy really big. You know, we do <laughs> SB 1070 crazy, Joe Arpaio crazy. Um, but the truth is that there are a lot of indicators and there are a lot of reasons that we've kind of seen extremes like that in Arizona, but there are a lot of indicators that it's becoming 
bluer and bluer all the time. So, you know, in 2010, just 10 years ago, Arizona went in hard for that Tea Party wave. And they had in the state house, uh, you know, something like 40 Republicans in the House to 20 Democrats and like 20 run Republicans to nine Democrats, super, uh, you know, proof majority, uh, veto proof majority. And now, you know, they barely have a, they barely have a majority in the House and um, a, a, a comfortable but smaller one in the, in the Senate. And, and they're going to lose mm-hmm. at least one of those, I think. I think that when you look at Arizona, you have to realize that all the votes are in Maricopa County. That's where Phoenix is. It's where right. it's where Old Town Scottsdale is for uh, tourist goers. Um, mm-hmm. But that's also the area that is experiencing the biggest growth. It was the biggest growing county in the country last year. Oh my God. And so I think that people think of Arizona as like this really hard red state that's in a shift, but the shift has been going on for a long for a long time. Yeah, that shift, Mike, is something we've talked about a couple of times before. So why don't we, I want to take a quick detour and why don't you talk about that, um, the, the shift that's happening in the Sun Belt, uh, and then Lucy, we're going to come back and talk about uh, Cindy McCain in just a moment. So the Sun Belt states all have a couple of key characteristics, and that is they are, as Lucy just pointed out very eloquently, they're undergoing some rather dramatic demographic transformations. And they're happening really in two significant areas, but there's a couple of other demographics that seem to make them work for a more centrist type of politics. The first is these economies that uh, Lucy again was talking about in Maricopa County, places like Scottsdale, um, even Mesa, um, they're, they're now centered and anchored with these new tech-oriented, high-skilled worker economies. And a lot of the people that are moving there are white-collar, uh, younger more frankly progressive, maybe not in the ideological sense, but certainly more centrist and less partisan perspectives than what you know Arizona stereotypically used to be conceived as. And that's not particular to Arizona. That's what's happening in Texas with like Austin and the Houston suburbs and Dallas, Fort Worth. Same things are happening in Maricopa County. And it's happening in, through the entire Sun Belt. And it's why we at the Lincoln Project have doubled down on this new Southern strategy, right? This Sun Belt ties in very nicely with this changing, younger, more forward-thinking and aspirational new economy worker. You also have a large number of Latino voters, right, that are growing rather exponentially uh, throughout the Southwest specifically, of course, in in the Georgias, which is is now in play as well. In the North Carolinas, it's an African-American vote. Uh, You couple that with seniors, a lot of snowbirds in Arizona, as we call them, um, and retirees through warmer climates throughout the South, particularly hard hit by COVID. Um, And Arizona, again, is spiking again, right? Arizona had one of the worst hard hit states because of the mismanagement of the pandemic by not only Donald Trump, but Doug Ducey, the governor of Arizona. We're seeing those numbers really jump off the charts again. We're going to have another bad spike. Speaks directly to the 65 plus demographic. You add all three of those, suburban college, white, high tech workers, Latinos, 65 plus, you've got the perfect recipe for a shift away from a hard red, ruby red state to a more centrist politics. And we know that that is what's moving the demographics you're talking about or is COVID. Yeah, that's right? uh, COVID specifically. That's yeah. the most, the biggest change with 65 plus. But again, what Lucy's saying is exactly right. Arizona has been changing for many years, right? The Napolitano yeah, was right. the governor. Right. Arpaio, who was kind of the 
you know, right. to the right of Attila the Hun or Kelly Leffler <laughs> or whoever we want to talk about, you know, um, lost in Maricopa County, right? And uh, was defeated in 2016, the same year that Trump wins. Uh, Catherine Sinema wins in the 2018 midterms. Yeah. Um, this is a trend, okay? It's not a one-off. Right. These weren't right. anomalous. There is a movement away, and you can kind of see it historically, and there's every expectation. Biden you know, got a plus 3.8 you know, in, in Arizona with the, with the polling averages. Uh, this is very seriously, I think, going to be a um, bellwether state. I think it's like the new Ohio. Arizona is wow. a really fascinating place wow. uh, electorally now. That's fascinating. And Lucy, you and I were talking recently about the surprising number of anti-Trump Republicans in Arizona compared to other states. And um, and last week, Cindy McCain finally, formally endorsed Joe Biden for president. So can you explain the importance of John McCain in Arizona uh, as someone who represented the state in the Senate for 31 years? And then how much is Cindy McCain's support for Joe Biden going to impact the election in Arizona? Yeah. So I think that it impacts it more than people might realize in some ways and less in others. I think that in terms of uh, be, because of some of the things we've talked about, I think that Arizona Republicans are not as tight of a co- coalition as one might think. Even during the heyday of uh, John McCain and John Kyle in the Senate, they were still at constant odds with the Arizona Republican Party, the county party in Maricopa County. And so infighting among, among Republicans is pretty typical in, in such a way that I'm not sure that anyone who's, you know, rock red is going to really give a damn about Cindy McCain's endorsement. I think at the same time, Arizonans have a huge amount of pride in the idea of being free-thinking, mavericky sort of people. I think Arizonans love the story of how when Nixon was on the verge of being impeached and ultimately resigned, it was Barry Goldwater and John Rhodes who went to, the at the time, the minority leader, who who went to uh, Nixon and said, this is abominable and you need to get the hell out. Um, and so I think that that independent streak is, is really important. Uh, I'm not sure if anyone who was going to vote, vote for Trump is now going to go vote for Biden because of Cindy McCain's endorsement. I think McCain made it pretty clear how he felt about, about Trump over the years. I do think that it could um, I do think it could cause people who feel like they want to be good, upstanding Republicans to stay home or not participate. And I know that that piece is often uncomfortable to talk about, but it's not just that we want disaffected Republicans to go pull the lever for Biden. If you can't do it, then stay home. <laughs> That's also <laughs> exercising your vote. So I think that right. those are the kinds of things that we could see at play because of an endorsement like this. I mean, there have been other endorsements that are probably as important, like the endorsement uh, by Jeff Flake um, and some others. So uh, interesting stuff afoot in, in Arizona. And it's true, there are a lot of people who have been not just McCain alums, but Jan Brewer alums and others. Um, members of, you know, the the large Mormon community in Arizona who are, um, you know, thought of as being part of a Republican stronghold. A lot of folks, some who've come out publicly, some who haven't, um, but a lot of folks working behind the scenes in a way that 
that when I first realized it, I found even surprising. Yeah, Mike, what's your take on this, especially the Mormon community there, which we've talked about a bit recently, especially in light of that that community being key to the Spencer Cox upset in in the Utah primary. Right. Yeah, look, there's uh, Lucy, um, as usual, hit it right on the head. Um, This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Arizona has been by far the most active grassroots Lincoln Project state. Mm. And they all came to us. I mean, we weren't <laughs> deep in Arizona, but you're right. and, and in true Arizona Maverick style, they kind of create their own little narrow lane. And they're like, well, this is what we want to say, but this is what we're going to do. And we're like, well, have at it. You know, yeah. however we can help resource you and, and make it more effective. Um, so you've got very active, probably six or seven different groups and organizations led by different individuals, some who we work closely with and some who we don't even know that are just right. like, we're Republicans, we're conservatives, we're not voting for this guy. We're yeah. doing it a different way. And it's like, have well, on the board. Oh, yeah. An example of someone like that, Mike, and I, I know that you've spoken with him and been in touch too, is someone like Bob Worsley, who is a guy who uh, was a entrepreneur who started Sky Mall back in the day. Remember how we used to shop on airplanes? And he uh, is a um, well-known, prominent Mormon businessman uh, who uh, was also very involved in the uh, Latino community in Arizona. And in 20, between 10, 2010 and 2012, when he saw all the crazy stuff that was happening with SB 1070, et cetera, he decided to recall and then primary Russell Pierce, right? And and did, and then served in the Senate for many years. And he came out last month and said, um, Trump does not speak for Mormons. Mike Pence had gone to Arizona and was having a Mormons for Pence event. And Bob put up his hand and said, no, you don't speak for us. And he has organized, you know, publicly hundreds of prominent Mormon businessmen. And I think that I mentioned him in part because I think that's an example of a guy who I think was engaged in something 10 years ago around this horrible draconian immigration law and getting rid of Russell Pierce that was in some ways for Arizonans a similar episode to uh, getting rid of a scorch like Donald Trump. Maricopa County got rid of Joe Arpaio. Um, So Arizonans are comfortable with changing their minds and rejecting folks that maybe we realized were a bridge too far. And Senator Wardsley has been in touch with us, and you're exactly right. He's he's that consummate Arizonan, a Mormon, very, very well-respected in the community. We've met with him a number of times, and he's like, look, we can get thousands of Mormons. I mean, the network in the Mormon community is yeah. is extraordinary. And again, this is base Republican vote. Yes. It, this is like, you know— uh, this is these the are Repu- not soft R's. No, these are the this is the Republican base, and that debate is happening. And you know, we have spoken offline too, just because I'm interested. I'm fast. I lived in Arizona for a couple of years, 25 years ago, and we, you know, kind of I was reminiscing a little bit talking about the the, the Mormon family, the Mormon community, and you know, he was saying, "Look, I, I've got five kids. 
two of them are Trump voters, two of them are Biden voters, and the <laughs> other one is I'm still working on, right? So it, it, this is not easy for anybody. Yeah. But there is yeah. a strong, more than any other Christian community that I have seen, a strong contingency of Mormons in Utah, as you mentioned, in Nevada, in Montana, absolutely in Arizona, that are standing up and saying, nope, I'm ready to be counted. Yeah. on a different side of this and I can't do it and I won't do it. Yeah. Some are for Biden, some are not, but a lot of them are just saying I'm not going to vote for Donald Trump. Before we leave Arizona, I want to look at three key voter groups there, which are were Republican voters, college-educated white voters, and Hispanic voters. And you touched on this a little bit uh, just, just a few minutes ago, Mike. But according to a New York Times Siena poll, which came out last week, Trump had an 11% job disapproval rating among GOP voters in Arizona. 52% disapproval rating for white college-educated voters, which is the demographic you've been telling us all along is the one that's moving the most, and 63% disapproval among Hispanic voters. So how critical have those groups been in the past, and how important will these groups be in determining who wins Arizona in 2020? So let's talk about college-educated voters first. Uh, Donald Trump uh, in 2016 got 34% nationally of the college-educated white vote. As a historical low, mm. uh, those numbers dropped much further in 2018 when people realized, you know, there's a lot of people who held their nose and were like, okay, I'll vote for Donald Trump because he's still Republican. Maybe he grows under the role. Maybe he'll act like a yeah. president. When it became clear that he was not. They bought it. They, they took it home. They unwrapped it and did not like what they saw. They're like, oh, no, this really is what he was saying. <laughs> this is the guy. And they, they, the, that is where you saw the hemorrhaging in the Republican base in 2018 and why that was such a significant blue wave in the midterm elections. Okay. Those numbers, we believe, have gotten lower, even lower than, than that. You're seeing some of that with a negative nine, I think you just said, yep. with Republican voters. Mm -hmm. you, I think many of the listeners have heard us talk about the Bannon line, which is 4%. That's the goal that we at the Lincoln Project have, right. have been looking to get. If we, if we get 4% of Republican voters to abandon Donald Trump, uh, we think that we're in a pretty good spot. We're at a plus nine right now, more than double that in Arizona. By the way, we're, we're at least double that in most states with the exception of North Carolina, where right. it's still at about we're still parity. Close to even. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. dead even. So, right. so we're fighting hard in North Carolina, but we've moved numbers in a lot of these other states. Yeah. Um, the other demographics that you're talking about is Hispanic voters. What you're seeing, and you may have heard in the news of the past couple of weeks that the, you know, Biden's hemorrhaging Hispanic voters. Mm. It is true, but that's primarily Cubans in Miami-Dade. And there is a little bit of an upward tick in uh, Hispanic males, U.S. born under 40, hmm. that are a little bit Trumpy. Uh, hmm. And they, they actually are beginning to mirror their white cohorts, non-college educated males under 40. Uh, it's less sticky. They can be moved back. Hmm. But there is, I think, some sign of either assimilative tendencies on the part of, 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 of uh, Hispanic Americans yeah. and just kind of general anxiety, just overall economic anxiety, which is not an excuse for his cultural and social behaviors. But it's there. We've got to admit it. So they're a little bit more susceptible to cross pressures than than probably their white cohort. Actually, much more. Yeah. But but they are moving there until they're corrected back. Right. 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 Um, white white men tend to be more all about white identity grievance politics. Right. You got Hispanics that are kind of on the fence, going, "Well, I'm not really like the undocumented that he's railing on. Like that's not my community. But I also have a little bit of sensitivity to it, yeah. and I understand it." Yeah. And so they're kind of like going, well, what does that mean for the economic conditions of where I'm at? My job, I'm not writing code for a living. I'm not, you know, right. my job is an hourly, you know, warehouse job. What do I do here? Yeah. And once we start making a lot of those cultural pills, we start to correct it and bring them back yeah. away from Trump. Yeah. But there's a little bit of a, 
there's a little bit of bait there that that they're starting to take. Yeah. So I want to do one more thing before we leave Arizona and then talk about RBG as well before we leave this episode. So looking at the Senate in Arizona, that same New York Times Siena poll showed Mark Kelly up over Martha McSally. It's 6% of GOP voters, 52% of white college-educated voters, and 57% of Hispanic voters all support Mark Kelly over McSally. Um, Lucy... How should we be thinking about the Senate race in Arizona within the context of the whole Senate and and the presidential election there? Well, first of all, Martha McSally is just a complete train wreck of a candidate, and she could <laughs> not be less attuned. There's repeating. <laughs> she could not be less attuned to her audience. She is like a masterclass in someone going to Washington and hiring staff who have maybe one time went to the state for spring training and just have no clue what they're doing. So her strategy has been to go all in for Trump. And that is turning out to be a really, really stupid strategy. And so in addition to all the aforementioned stuff about how Arizonans are quite comfortable with voting for people of multiple parties on the same ballot and quite comfortable with mavericky candidates... They also, you know, she at the same time, her whole shtick has been, I'm this uh, female fighter pilot. I'm a fighter pilot. And then poor thing, she finds herself running against an astronaut. So (laughs) (laughs) I would say that one of the things that is, I think, so appealing about Mark Kelly, and I think people know that he's the husband of Gabby Giffords, uh, a beloved Arizona congresswoman, Democrat from Tucson, who was the victim of that shooting about a decade ago and has uh, been a person that Arizonans have gotten to know because of his how he stood by his wife and his advocacy work. I think that when, when I talk to my relatives in Arizona and friends in Arizona who vote there. I think that in addition to having that comfort level with bouncing back between Dems and ours, I think that there there is a sense that the progressive left in Washington maybe doesn't understand the anxieties that they have, anxieties about the border, anxieties about the economy. But that there's also a lot of ugly toxicity coming out of Republicans. And so someone like Mark Kelly is a perfect candidate for them because he already has a a much longer tenure and relationship with uh, Arizonans than Martha McSally does. And he's a business guy. He's friendly with, uh, you know, all the Chamber of Commerce groups. He's a person who has done business in Arizona. And so I think that... um, it's a it's a good indicator of where that race is headed. I don't think it's actually nearly as connected to the presidential race as people may think, because you know you see a much much bigger split um, among among uh, people in terms of how they feel about the McSally Kelly race versus the the Biden uh, Trump race. But but I I do think that the the motivation of voters to engage in that race is is super super interesting. And Arizona is going to wind up with um, two Democrat senators for the first time in many, 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 many decades. It's, it's really, this is, you know, land of Goldwater. But 
Barry Goldwater, I think, would be, you know, rolling in his grave over the state of the current Republican Party anyway. You know, Mike, we've spoken a lot about the way states process and count absentee ballots. Um, Particularly, we focused on Florida because they're different from the Rust Belt, which is far less prepared to do their absentee ballot counting ahead of time. But Florida's been doing this for a while. So they're going to be more prepared on election night to report the counts for those mail-in ballots than some of the other states. And 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 Florida, you know, obviously is contentious in every major presidential election, but this year is going to be extremely important on election night because it will give us a signal as to what we can expect in the days to to follow. Um, how important uh, uh, is the process in Arizona, and what is that going to be like compared to the other states? Let me walk you through some of it really briefly. In Arizona, absentee ballots will begin getting mailed on October the seventh. Uh, absentee ballots will begin getting processed and counted. We've talked about the difference of those on October the 20th. So they do have an early count process. They will actually start counting. And so you can expect an earlier result. Of course, being closer to the West Coast Pacific, you know, um, time zone, it's, it's not gonna be as early as like a Florida or North Carolina, but it will be earlier by, by most standards. Here's the thing though. Everyone can vote by mail and the state will be mailing absentee ballot applications to all active voters. So not, wow. not the ballot itself, but the ballot request. Okay. So this is the a significant departure. Okay? okay. And so you will see a much larger vote by mail in Arizona than mm-hmm. you have ever seen before. Mm-hmm. How much we don't know, but it's probably going to be considerably larger. Yeah. Okay. Um, but again, with an early count and an early processing, um, you will, you will see a, a larger mail request, a larger mail vote and a, um, earlier count than most Western states. I saw an estimate today that something like over 80% of of uh, voters in Arizona have already uh, requested a, a mail-in ballot. This is a, I can fact check that. I saw it on a, a yeah. uh, I think on a Republic piece. Um, so Arizona is very used to voting by mail already. Um, there are a couple of other pieces of good news. One um, both the Maricopa County Recorder, which again is where all the votes are, as well as the Arizona Secretary of State, um, which is the body that oversees elections in Arizona, are Democrats. And the Arizona Secretary of State has made available a tool for Arizonans where they can log in and check the status of their ballot uh, after October 7th about whether their ballot has been counted. Uh, and the Maricopa County Recorder's office, I understand, has also made a tool like this available. Arizonans are not only used to voting by mail, but they're also used to what the process is if you don't send your ballot in in time. Um, and so lots of experience among Arizona voters of um, mailing, you know, if they don't mail it in, of um, send of, of walking their ballot in that day. And that may end up being an option that a lot of people exercise because then you skip the line. There are also, of course, is early in-person voting. The one other thing I want to tell you about that is just blew my mind in Arizona is that, and I read a lot of YouGov polling because I just think they're very good, is that they asked, I think a week ago, actually in sometime in the last week, they were figuring out, okay, how motivated are these people to vote? Of folks who, and it was the kind of split that you'd expect. It was like 47% Biden, 44% Trump, 6% not sure. Then they asked each group how likely they would be to vote 
for someone else other than the person that they had chosen. So they said to people who'd said, I won't vote for Biden. Would you consider voting for someone? I, I, would you consider voting for Biden? 8% of people said yes. In other words, I would vote for Biden. 11% said maybe. Then they asked the reverse. They asked people who had said they would absolutely not vote for Trump. Would you consider changing your mind? In other words, we're inferring Biden voters, Trump voters, whatever. And only 3% of people who had said they would, were not voting for Trump said that they would consider it. And 9% said maybe. So you have like a 2x margin there of, but because I, I think there's been a lot of worry there about, well, how strong is the support? And to me, that was a, a good indicator. That's fascinating. I mean, send that over. Yeah. I want to check that yeah. stuff out. I, I think if you're using a standard prognosticator of enthusiasm for the candidates, I think you're making a mistake in 2020 mm. because so much of this is just anti-Trump mm-hmm. vote. Yeah, like there's yeah. so many people yeah. been waiting for four years yeah. for this election. Yeah, that you're not shaking anybody off. And you know, we've talked a little bit about what the convention means and what the debates mean and. Right. The historic stratification of this race, I just think it's baked. It's cooked in. I'm not going to say that there isn't room for movement. There is, but it's very, very de minimis. Yeah. People know. I mean, there's nothing you can do anymore that's going to shock people about yeah. Donald Trump. Yeah. They see it. They know it. They smell it. They're pissed about it. They're going to show up and they're going to vote. So how do you see this playing out and impacting the election, given that the Supreme Court vacancy is going to be filled, very likely, by a hypocritical Republican caucus in the Senate that doesn't really give a damn about precedent or what they said before about seating a justice this close to an election. Yeah. So I don't get mad. I think that we're experiencing a a little bit of an emperor has no closed moment for those of us who are hardcore never Trump. And I'll tell you why. I think that... A few years ago, and I think about this when I think about how last year when I was running this primary campaign of Joe Walsh and I was trying to convince people who still identified as Republicans and participate in Republican primaries to participate, a lot of the questions were things like, well, what about conservative judges? What about the judges? And so our line would be, of course, we want conservative judges, but Trump is so toxic and the Senate is such rot that we will forego that to not lose our democracy. And so there is a read of this here, which is sort of like, well, isn't this kind of a great outcome then, right? Because you are going to get that conservative judge, right? And push Trump out the door maybe moments later, right? And so I think the fact that many of us, and I share this view, have, have said, you know, the vacancy should not be filled until later and Republican senators mm-hmm. are hypocrites. It's like, yeah, what else? Yeah. Tell me something I don't know. Right? right. Um, it's yeah. been fun to see Lindsey Graham squirm. I think that it could have an impact on, uh, the Graham Harrison race. I think the money he raised last Friday night was unbelievable. I, th- oh gosh, I think it's yeah. really interesting to think about in terms of the McSally Kelly race, because Kelly, because of how Martha McSally went into her Senate seat, Kelly could actually be seated early um, and make a huge difference. But I have seen, I I guess I think the verdict is out, but I do worry in some ways, yes, it, it could make, I think the kinds of people who feel so angry and go to the polls over this were already going. 
but there is a, I think, an ever so slight risk of people who are kind of flirting with um, riding with Biden to think, uh, like bridge too far if it's not filled. So I tend to think electorally, in some ways, it's just better to have the Band-Aid ripped off and have it filled. Uh, That is the kind of, you'll see the kind of bump then that you saw maybe after the Kavanaugh hearings in those midterms. So I, I think it probably, if we just put aside the court makeup for a minute, I think a new justice being named before the election is probably a good thing for Biden. (laughs) Mike, so you've got your finger on the pulse of the numbers minute by minute, day by day. And I asked Professor Orrin Kerr about this on the Roundup last week and and Reed Galen and Sarah Lenti who are here with us. But I'm I'm really wondering, because we know historically that the Democrats don't vote on the court, right? It's not something that animates them. It doesn't turn them out. It just hasn't, but right. it does for conservatives, right. right? It has historically been one of the biggest turnout motivators for, for conservatives. So as, as we're thinking about the dynamics at play in the races in the battleground states right now, how do you think this vacancy and whether or not it's filled right now and by whom is going to impact these races? That's a great question. And first, let me start by saying, as we're taping this, mm-hmm. the announcement just came out that Amy Barrett will be the nominee. Being wow. Oh. oh. So, and I, hey. say, I say that just because, yeah, I got my finger on the pulse of it. But that changes the that changes the dynamic too, right? Is now we're into, now that's who. Now we know who, and that will become the focus of the energy and the combatants on both sides of this politically. And and I bring that up because it is important to understand that this is going to come and go in waves, depending, right? So we were just a few minutes ago talking about what the vacancy meant. What does RBG mean to people? Right. You saw enormous sums of money right. being thrown by you know Democrats largely who were animated by this. And how could they? That was a wave. Now this next week coming up, you're going to see another different wave, wave. A different wave. And it's going to, I think ultimately what Lucy articulated is probably the most likely scenario. I think that there's a net benefit to this because really uh, just as a matter of timing and unfortunate timing, obviously by losing a justice and an iconic one at that, it really is focusing the minds of Democrats at a time when they're not animated Mm. by this as an issue. We all know that conservatives, you know, lose sleep at night thinking about the court, right? (laughs) You know, and that's just not the way Democrats, they're just not motivated by it, but they are now. And we, you know, this close to the election with a hearing that is coming up and my guess, it's going to be a very truncated, uh, you know, uh, process. Right. I certainly would. If I were McConnell, I'd say we're going to have one day hearings, and they're all going to put the vote up on Tuesday, right. and not put uh, you know his members of his caucus up to any more danger than they already know that's going to cause. Right. Because we do know. Again, let's take it back to this white college educated mm-hmm. suburban exactly. women. Yeah. This is this is a real decision here. Mm-hmm. We're talking about literally the end, probably of Roe versus Wade, very highly likely, yeah. and the Affordable Care Act. Right. Two measures that po- that pull very well with right. college educated suburban white right. Republican right. women. Okay. These numbers are they're good numbers mm-hmm. um, for for support for both of those decisions, for both of these issues. And when you take that away in a very real meaningful way within a, a month of an election, yeah. there's going to be a price to be paid. The question is how much. Right. And that's what we'll be yeah. debating over the course of the next couple of weeks. But I think it's going to happen very fast. I think this nomination will be put up forward. There'll be a day of hearings. The Democrats will say you're not actually you know, vetting this, right. 
the battlefield will be very condensed and McConnell will move on. That's so fascinating that Barrett is the choice. I mean, I guess it's not fascinating. It's predictable. But that really is going to piss off white suburban women. And I think we often confuse data about um, how people feel about abortion versus how people feel about Roe v. Wade. And I looked this up the other day when Tom Cotton tweeted something stupid about the Supreme Court, which is that last year, a Pew survey found that over 70% of Americans actually, not just women, oppose overturning Roe v. Wade. So that's very out of step with mainstream Americans. And angry suburban, well-educated women definitely turn out. (laughs) So to vote. That's a really interesting distinction that we never really drill into because it's a really good point. Roe v. Wade versus abortion and attitudes on both of those being different, very different. They are, but both of them, keep in mind, leave far enough margin. Yeah. To be to get us past the ban and right, I'm interested in four percent. If it's if it's not yeah. if it's more than four percent, I say you're in trouble. Yeah. So to me, and again, I I look at it very myopically. If it's moving the numbers just on the margins, it could create a tectonic shift in the electoral map. Okay. The one follow up question I have to this piece of the conversation is: Does this, or is there is there any way that the Trump campaign can use can use this? Can they potentially hold out? the confirmation until after the election. I think one of my question is, can they change the nature of the election, at least in their messaging and their rhetoric from being a, a referendum on Donald Trump, which who who is a chaos candidate, a referendum on, I won't, I'm not going to say mismanagement or incompetence around COVID because we now know that it was malice that he intentionally lied. And over 200,000 Americans are now dead as a result of that that he is killing us, but can can they use this to transform the nature of the campaign of the election from a referendum to a choice? And does, does a choice campaign, a choice election become easier, easier for him to, to win the demographics that we're talking about and ultimately carry the battleground States versus a referendum election? My immediate reaction is no, because it's so baked in and who Donald Trump is. What I will say is this, I think Amy Barrett is now his running mate. Mm. In a way that Mike Pence is or is not, right? This is real. This isn't abstract anymore. We're going to see her. We're going to talk about her. We're going to, she's going to completely dominate the airwaves for the next couple of weeks. And in, in a real sense, she's going to personify yeah. Trumpism, yeah. right? To a lot of especially medium, low propensity voters who are paying attention for the first time in the, since you know, they voted in right. 2016. Right. And so I think that, again, I think that's a net negative for Donald Trump. I don't think that that helps him. Right. His base knows. The reason why she was the nominee, by the way, is because so much, so many, I should say, of the Republicans and the Republican establishment as it exists under Donald mm-hmm. Trump wants this pick, yeah. right? The yeah. right political yeah. pick, frankly, would be Lagoa, right? Would be the, you know, the Cuban American woman to kind of work on locking up the Cuban vote and, and start putting Florida right. out of, out of, out of, uh, out of reach here. Um, the choice of Amy Barrett really, I think, is about um, who he's got to placate in the hierarchy of the Republican Party, as much as the grassroots activists. They're both very conservative women. Yeah, this is about we want we want Amy. Going back to the the purpose of this episode, which is to talk about voting and what's happening in these states. This is all happening as 
the vote is just beginning to really take off. And it co- so, so as massive waves of voters begin filling out their mail-in ballots, their absentee ballots, which is going to be where most of the ballots are cast in this election, at the same time, we now have a couple of weeks worth of super intense media coverage ahead of us about Amy Coney Barrett. And I think you're going to start to see some really big lines forming with early voting states. You know, we saw some of that in Virginia on the first day they opened up 350 people deep. It then kind of moderates um, and has ebbed a little bit. I think you're going to see a, a pretty big spike of of women in the suburbs mm. showing up and and, yeah. and taking it out at the ballot. Yeah, I, I think that Barrett is uh, definitely to placate the hardcore evangelical base that is hung with him. I think you're right, Mike, that she becomes the the antidote to Harris, they hope. Um, I don't, I've thought a lot about what about the lame duck session scenario. I think it just breaks down because it really would just come down to a, um, a Senate makeup of in either scenario, but let's assume a, a, a Biden win and then a Senate that tries to ram through a court appointee. One, you have some of these wild cards like a Mark Kelly maybe being seated, but you also have probably then a lot of Republicans who are trying to turn the page on Trump and get out unscathed. And it, his nominee would be so um, so just tied up with him because of those things you just mentioned, Mike. And so I, I don't see that happening because again, part of why they all have fallen in with Trump so hard is that they're, um, you know, spineless, megalomaniac sycophants who really are only interested in themselves and their own political survival, which is why they're already beginning to turn. Um, so yeah, I think that they probably have to go big or go home. Um, it is really going to hurt uh, people like in in the meantime, between now and November 3rd, people like Susan Collins. It is, I mean, Sarah Gideon is going to be all over this. It's going to really hurt Cory Gardner. Um, this is going to be big for Hickenlooper. Um, so may not result in a court makeup that um, people feel so supportive of, but certainly I think it's going to to really probably just be another opportunity to show kind of some of the ugliness of, of the current party faithful on display. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.